Hello and welcome to another episode of the Lift Up pod with me, your host, Sophie Packer. Lift Up is the first accessible, global, member-driven and free women in life science community. And this is the podcast where we get to meet some of the inspiring women who are a part of it. On today's episode, I am joined by Amanda Kirby, a qualified GP by trade. Amanda had a change of career after her second child was diagnosed with dyspraxia at three. Since then, in the last 25 years, she has spent her career researching neurodiversity, authoring nine books and more than 100 research papers, and founding Do It Solutions, a tech for good company that provides neurodiversity screening, support tools, and leadership training. Amanda, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. No, my absolute pleasure. So diving straight in, if that's okay, when I was researching for this episode, trying to find statistics specifically on female leaders that are neurodivergent, your report, Where Have All the Girls Gone?, was genuinely uh, the first thing that came up. And for everyone listening, I highly recommend reading Amanda's report. But I would love if you could share the journey with me that's led to your passion for researching and working in this space. Sure. Uh, I suppose I have to start with it's my son's fault. (laughs) So 30 plus years ago, I was a GP and I was very happy, worked in paediatrics and and knew a little bit about neurodevelopmental conditions. But he was diagnosed at three with dyspraxia or developmental coordination disorder. And people kept going to me, you mean dyslexia? And I go, no, I don't. <laughs> you know? But when I went to the books and I went to the research, because I wanted, as a clinician, I wanted to find out more, and also very much as a parent, um, there was very little written. There was very little research written practically as well about what works and what doesn't. And I wanted an evidence base to go, why are you asking me to do this? Is it going to make any difference? So that started a journey. And I thought that if I was having those experiences as a doctor, then a lot of other people were having similar experiences because I had to tell his story again and again to different people in different places. So that made me start to think about how we work in silos. And so often parents and adults today often will go to see one professional, another professional. And it made me interested in the language we use and how that can be quite confusing. So my, I'm nosy, I'm like, you know, and I'm, I'm a sort of, I think a natural born researcher in the sense of I wanted to find out more because how would I know how to support my child if I didn't find out more? And that started to lead me into how do we look at services Do the services work? What are the barriers to success? And when he was born, I was told he'd grow out of it, like you get a birthday card on your 16th birthday going, it's all gone now, (laughs) which is obviously not true, you know. And the other thing was, it was very much a male-dominated, the research was really about boys very much, you know. And I started thinking, well, there should be some girls around, but they kept saying, oh, it's much rarer, whatever it was, much rarer in girls. And it made me think about how we were potentially missing females. And I set up a clinical centre because I needed to work, find out more and work with different people coming from different professions. And um, again, wanted to document that to know what works and what doesn't, you know, so have, gaining that evidence base. And I was starting to see girls come through and... As I worked in the the service for longer, we were seeing adolescents and adults. People were growing up. We couldn't stop them. So um, I started seeing lots of females. And it started as a neurodivergent 
female with a neurodivergent family and I've now got neurodivergent grandchildren, it, it's become really important. And increasingly, I, I questioned why were we missing the girls, you know, and it was very much because we were going through this professional lens. So it led me to to ask more questions. There's ne- there's a never ending set of questions to ask. That's the thing. So that's that's a sort of quick story, probably. No, that's wonderful. And there's so much that we can come back on. And, and I plan on coming back to a lot of that, you know, lack of studies on women, lack of inclusion, lack of diagnoses. There's you know a myriad of things that can, you know, affect how people progress in their careers, in their personal lives as well. If you don't know, you don't have something, how can you address it and kind of overcome it? Yeah. And also, I think, Sophie, as well, importantly, that if you have the wrong diagnosis, so that's one of the things we've seen from some of the recent research is that females potentially who are looking for a diagnosis who gain a diagnosis of ADHD have often gone as very circuitous pathway where they've gone to a GP who might not know so much about neurodevelopmental conditions, that's a training issue, um, may recognise that person's anxious or depressed, given antidepressant, but not realise it's ADHD that's the primary challenge. Doesn't work. So they go back to the GP again and they get changed to another antidepressant. Doesn't work. And so that person's perception of themselves is, I must be really bad because nothing's working, as opposed to getting gaining the right picture of your strengths and challenges. So I think where females have ended up is a really interesting one as well, and where what the research is telling us. It's a lot. Uh, and as someone myself that is you know, severely anxious um, from a family similar to you with lots of neurodiversity, in different ways, shapes and forms running throughout it, I can attest that, you know, diagnosis is the hardest part. Treatment is the second hardest part as a result of that. But I'm really curious that your company you started, Do It, mm-hmm. provides support and screening and leadership training. How did you come about developing this kind of solution to what was clearly quite a big problem? So (laughs) a big sigh. So I suppose one of the things when I started running the clinical service, we were we were seeing one person and one person and one person. And I and I wanted to reach more people effectively because the assessment service generally, well, we got longer waiting lists, lack of services, um, pockets of a bit postcode lottery going on around the place as well. Um, And it's expensive if you want to go privately. So I want an equitable solution, which says, and also a lot of the way we were diagnosing was very much in silos. So we were diagnosing ADHD, diagnosing autism, diagnosing dyslexia. So the door you went through was the diagnosis you got, and it depended on the professional you saw. And if that professional didn't see that all of those conditions all overlap with each other, you could end up going through one door and another door being told, I have, I haven't, what is it? And that could be really exhausting, wearing and inaccurate. So I wanted to, I think, naively, I think probably all my life, I think naivety is driven, you know, let's go, you know, enthusiastic naivety is probably an approach that I take, you know, curiosity as well. Blind optimism, I think is something that I've really um, ruled my life by. (laughs) Exactly, it's a blind optimism. So I thought... Let's think about um, how we can gather information in another way to be more person-centred, recognising that all the neurodivergent traits all over lap. Your brain doesn't know that dyslexia is 
there isn't dyslexia bit, ADHD bit, you know, brains all doesn't know that. So let's be person-centered. So develop screening tools, which are much more person-centered, looking at the well-being of that person in the context. So we've got tools for the workplace, tools for interwork, tools for universities, for colleges, apprenticeships, justice in prisons, because it's different contexts, right? So that's really important. And then the training, same thing. We wanted something so that's online, it's accessible, so it can reach more people. And it's it's at a cost where people can afford it, because that's really important. Otherwise, nothing is nothing, right? So if you're sitting waiting on a waiting list, I know one area in the UK has got a waiting list for adults for 10 years. That's the damage that can be done yeah. in 10 years, though, is, you know, Jeez. some may say is the challenge to then overcome that and, you know, recorrect is much bigger cost than if you'd actually addressed it to start with. Completely, completely. And so, you know, you're so nothing is nothing and getting some guidance, practical guidance. And also, if you if you've got dyslexia difficulties, you can't go dyslexic people need this. Right. Because. I might need this and you might need that because you might have reading difficulties and somebody else might have spelling difficulties. So if you give me spelling tools and I've got reading difficulties, they're not going to work, right? So being person-centered, so it provides practical guidance and resources and it shows strengths. The other thing over the years when I first started off, it was a very deficit model. It was very much like you only get a diagnosis if you tell me all the bad things you can't do, which is pretty depressing. (laughs) And I think it's really important to flip the narrative, not to to think, not think about those things because they are barriers to you progressing into leadership positions and progressing in work. But I think they are, you've got to think about strengths as well because that's what you're going to sell yourself. That's the avenue, you know, with blind optimism say, I can be, you know, <laughs> and off you go. You need to be able to sell yourself. And then the training was just around how do we open up conversations? So, so neurodiversity, in a sense, some people are just grabbing it now and going, this is interesting. But but we need to sort of go, yes, but let's explain what we're talking about. Otherwise, it becomes sort of a, a feeding festival of talking about bits of people yeah, rather than thinking about somebody as a whole. And you mentioned it in, in some way already, but there's lots of overlap. You know, not everyone is, it's not as if when I cut my finger, I've cut my finger. There is one thing that you need to do to address that cut finger. I'm going to put a plaster on it. Happy days. Hopefully I don't get an infection. But when it's to do with your brain, the problem is then it's unidentifiable unless there's lots of processes and techniques and analysis that's conducted. So it's it's hugely problematic. But the overlap between different either, you know, areas that people are affected by, but also how it is affecting each individual person. So, you know, transsectionality, intersectionality rather, is a massive problem where females are underrepresented in neurodiversity, but females are also underrepresented in leadership. So how is it that this is such a problem and are female neurodiverse leaders, is this really impacting them a lot more? It, it is. Uh, so this is a passion of mine, actually. Good, good. So I think there's a couple of things going on here. So if we take females and then females who are neurodivergent and think about what some of the issues might be. So female leaders 
some will have families and family demands and and that's things that women do right so they may well be parenting and they may be if you are a neurodivergent female leader you may well have neurodivergent children too right so that's an extra whammy in terms of the need to help and support I remember when my children were growing up and having to be there I worked part-time for for quite a few years because homework time I needed to sit with my son next to him otherwise you know he'd go I'm bored and I'm gone and he'd be gone you know and I'd need to engage him uh in you know in that so you need flexibility. So that's one of the things that how can you become a leader when you've got demands on you, maybe as a parent, as a female, without neurodiversity, but if you've got neurodiversity as well, and you've got neurodivergent children as well, that's another layer. And I did a piece of research a few years ago. I am a researcher at heart. Of course. <laughs> Looking at um, females' parents who have children who have dyspraxia or developmental coordination disorder and just looking at what they did. And what I saw was, and it's, it, it links into other research as well, a lot of the females were not taking promotions. They were working part-time. They were leaving jobs, even though they were more than capable, or they were taking jobs at a lower level with lower pay because of balancing the other things going on in their lives. And I think this is really important we recognise this because otherwise we're missing talent that is not progressing because we're not having flexible ways of working. And I think that's really difficult. You've got a, a child, if you're a female leader and you've got a child or male, but if you've got a, and you, you've got to pick up the kids, you've got to take them to cubs, you've got to do various things, you know, you're juggling those things. You can't be going to a corporate event at six o'clock in the evening. No, and not everyone you, wants to either, let's be honest. Um, well, that's, yeah, that's the point. Do we need to do that anymore? Yeah, you know? no, absolutely. I think one thing that, you know, if anything from you know going through the pandemic and covid is that we've seen flexibility increase in the workplace which mm. i think is a long overdue blessing so people can accommodate their lives inside and outside of work but from a skill set perspective and i guess i'm trying to really understand what what we can do as an individual let's say i am a senior manager in a company Either I'm diagnosed or not, but I perhaps feel that the work I'm doing isn't working for me in the way I'm doing it. What leadership training or skills do we give these women or you know, people more broadly to actually allow themselves to get those opportunities? So I think the first thing is, I think it goes back to sort of the strengths topic. So giving leaders the language to talk about neurodiversity in a positive way they're there because they've got skills and talents so that's the first thing and to to really celebrate that but also to have a conversation if you're working as a team or your leadership team or management team is recognizing within that team they're going to be people with different styles of communication and actually having at leadership level those conversations about communication preferences and how you can get better communication is a conversation we can all have and I think that starts to say, I'm, I work better in this way. I work here. This is where I work my best for these tasks. When you send me an email, uh, please put the header to, to marry the content. So if I'm looking for it because my organization isn't so good, I'm searching for this afterwards, that would help. 
some of the te- some of the strategies are low cost, no cost, and most of them are around communication. The other thing is that for neurodivergent leaders, often um, the planning and organisation bit has been a nightmare to do. Mm-hmm of things and do leadership and that's the one thing when you get to leadership stage having some support mechanisms in place to help with some of that planning and organization to help you to be your best self can be life-changing it really can be one thing that you said there around communication really uh resonated with me because as i mentioned i'm anxious i have really quite a very very significant social anxiety and I've had to tell every one of my managers, if you ever want to talk to me, please don't just send me a message saying, are you free to speak? Because mm. my head goes to, what have I done? I'm yes. in trouble. Yes. And that's a conversation that I've had to have and say, this, this sends my anxiety through the roof. Mm. Please tell me nothing's wrong. It's a good thing. Mm. Or tell me some context. Because otherwise, if you want to speak to me at 5 p.m. in the day, my whole day is a rise off freaking out that I'm going to get fired. And that's just how my brain works. And I think having the confidence to be able to say, this is what I need. Mm -hmm. This is what's going to be important for me is sometimes quite daunting, I think. And that can lead into being comfortable where you are, the environment that you're in and the people that you're surrounding yourself with. What would you suggest to people that perhaps are scared of the reaction that they will get? Because I imagine that this is something that is quite big in your world. It is big in my world. So I think the first thing is, I think a common, people often talk about, we need to share. And, you know, and I've heard bring your authentic self to work too many times now. And I actually want to leave part of my authentic self at home, right? Um, So I think the first thing is, you've got to be sure that when you do share, if you want to share, it is safe to do so. So if you're in senior leadership positions, I think you are in a good position to say, what do people know about neurodiversity? And just test the water to start with that conversation. If people are, oh, that's really interesting, and I've got a chat, and you start the conversation, mm-hmm. you can then say, yeah, do you know what? I have, or I am, this is me, and I think this would be useful for this organization if we talked about this a bit more. And in most strategies for being neuroinclusive, it has to start with senior leadership teams. Because unless you get buy-in at that level, nobody beneath you is going to feel safe. So you have to know what's going to happen. And then I think you have to be educated and informed. Now, you said you need to tell people what you need. Well, not everybody knows what they need. Yeah, fair. (laughs) Yeah, so that's a hard one because often people assume that if you're telling me that this, I know exactly what I need. But for some people, particularly females... A lot of females are only getting diagnosed in their 30s, 40s, and 50s, 60s, and they've been managing, and often there'll have been presenteeism, so they will have hidden under the table that they work for extra hours in the evening, extra hours in the weekend, but because they're ambitious, they will hide some of that stuff. Right. They, they may not have put the strategy in place, and they might appear really organised, but it's a com- but there's a lot of masking going on. There's a lot of compensatory stuff. It's like going the on. duck's legs paddling beneath the water. Yeah, absolutely, there's a lot going absolutely. On. And you feel shame. Sometimes you feel shame because in school you might have been picked on, you might have been bullied, you might have felt different. So it can be even at that leadership level, 
coming out can be quite a big thing. And you and so you've got to feel it's going to be okay and not be worried about, is it going to affect my ability to progress even further? And have you noticed a shift over 25 years in the number of women that are now being diagnosed, but also how they're being received? You know, what is the general consensus in the world that we live in now in terms of acceptance? So I think I'm an optimist. <laughs> so I'll start with that bit. Yeah, please. I think the last few, so when I, that a document I, I wrote um, was the first time then there was sort of a, a conference like that going, we had a conference and I wrote the paper. So that's not lot, that long ago, it was just before COVID. And, and, you know, I think in the last few years during, and I think the pandemic probably has allowed this sort of conversation to happen and virtual working to happen. Um, ADHD, for example, autism in females, we're seeing in research happening and that and more papers being published, more people standing up and, and organizations like ADHD and girls and other, or, you know, so organizations are talking more about it. There's a greater awareness than a few years ago. So that's really good. But <laughs> I knew a but was coming. <laughs> but, but I think, I, you know, I live and breathe this stuff. You know, I go to sleep and I dream neurodiversity. It's very sad, but I do. <laughs> but Lots of organizations are really not aware about what we're talking about. And I think this is, and I'm hearing um, anecdotally, and I'm collecting research at the moment as well, really about people's experiences when they share. And some of those, or disclose, I don't like the term disclose particularly, but when they share information, they've some people losing their jobs, right? Isn't that disgusting? Yeah. I think yeah. that's probably the word that would come to my yeah. mind and yeah. I'm assuming that there are certain industries jobs professions that are better at handling better about kind of being open about this you've worked with some leaders in the life sciences space mm-hmm. traditionally quite and still a very male dominated leadership level what has been your insight into you know this industry life sciences in general what do we still have to do oh no <laughs> no I think, I think actually I think there's I think there's a growing band of brilliant there's always been brilliant women around right but women who are being more vocal now than they were and and sort of saying this is what we need um I think that working, reducing the evidence base. So what I'm seeing, there are a number of neurodivergent researchers now standing up and saying, this is what I want to do and I want to do this work. And we're seeing an increase, really an increase in publications. So that's useful because we need more of the evidence base to say, this is who people are, this is what works, and we need it in the workplace, and we need it in, in education and students and everything. And we need to hear what are the barriers to you progressing. So I think the research needs to be done. I think we need to do, we do need to start with senior leadership and have those conversations. I've worked with some organizations who are really do, taking this serious in the life science space um, and having really good conversations. And I think what's useful is to go, actually, the strategies we use for people who are to be neuroinclusive is more inclusive for everybody. So that's a really important thing. So we're trying to flatten the bell curve. Mm -hmm. And in life sciences, if we start to think about universal design and how do we make 
the place, the people, the processes as inclusive as possible, then it's much easier whether you've got one arm, you're dyslexic, you become visually impaired, you know, it, it works for more people or you are having a baby and you're taking time off, you know. So there's lots of different reasons why that approach seems to be the most effective. And I think those conversations are happening in some places, but they're just not happening everywhere. I agree. And, you know, from personal experience, I work with lots of companies. You know, as a recruiter, we're very lucky to have a very broad cross-section. And there are some very traditional, you know, old school companies that are perhaps very much further behind in mm-hmm. this progress and these steps. But there are some companies that I work with and that I really am proud to work with that, you know, really encourage disabled applicants they encourage neurodiverse applicants it's written on job ads it's written on their websites and I think that's something that's really important every ad that I write I always write if you require reasonable adjustments please reach out and what is your advice to potentially companies to make sure that they are attractive and you know people aren't scared to talk to them or tell them what's going on so there's a number of things. <laughs> so one is, I think, uh, making sure your job descriptions match the job. Sounds obvious, but isn't always so. Avoiding terms which have a meaning that doesn't have a meaning, like flexibility. So what does that mean, right? Yep. Thinking about the words. Making your job descriptions more about the essentials rather than adding a whole list of desirables that nobody ever has or, or just are there in case of, right? So because females get put off by that and also neurodivergent applicants and so neurodivergent applicants who are females will be really put off by those things right um describe what it's like in your organization so people have got an idea of what it's like to work there if that's useful and then as you said sophie in an advert is always say if at any point in the the process application process interview process you might need some support i would not even say reasonable adjustments because Reasonable is in the context of the workplace, and that's important on the size. So if you need any support with your application or interview at any process, please let us know. If you say that, you've got to do another thing. You have to be clear about what all those processes are and let the person know what's going to happen. If you need help with the application, please give us a call if you need to have an alternative way of completing it. When coming for an interview, you need to give the applicants information about where the local bus stop is, the transport is, if they can park, what they need to wear, how many people are on the panel, what their names are, if they need to do any activities, are they doing a presentation, how long will that be, will they have to bring their own computer, a -hmm. list of details. Because like you said, you get anxious. Well, a lot of neurodivergent people get very anxious. Anxiety is a bedfellow of neurodiversity, same brain, you don't have two brains, you've got one. So the I don't know quite what to do drives anxiety and you arrive there, you've got all the skills, but you perform badly, you know, because you've got brain frog because you're so anxious. The other thing is to really think about the interview process of what are you measuring? So if you're recruiting somebody who's going to be sitting in, can work from home, sitting in an office, uh, doing research data analysis, for, for instance, why are you measuring how well they answer questions to you and how quick they are answering? Because they're never, unless they're going to be rapid fire in their job, why are you, why are you measuring that? So really think about your biases as well. And I think that's really important to marry 
the skills you want to see and, and maybe just have an informal chat with somebody. This is what we do. This is what we want to do. Can you give us some examples of when you've done that? So there's quite a lot of things people can do. Absolutely. And companies, you mentioned that it starts in senior leadership, right? Senior leadership influence the decisions in their businesses. That mm-hmm. therefore influences, you know, how accessible they are as a whole. You know, it's oftentimes thought of quite a costly experience that, oh, we have to do X, Y, Z. We're going to have to, you know, have an interpreter or a BSL interpreter. And these costs, more often than not, are very much covered by the government here in the UK. But I'm assuming other countries in the EU or US have similar services because it is illegal to, you know, not move someone forwards if they have any sort of disability or neurodiverse you know, adjustment that they require. And I think that's really important to mention that yeah. every single person is entitled to every single job if they can hit the skills and they Ab- are the right person. Absolutely. The other bit I think is really important is that that flattening the bell curve, that the duties of an employer should be to make anticipatory adjustments. So you have to be showing that you're not discriminatory in your practices. So the more you are more inclusive, the less you have to do. And most of this, like giving directions, if you're doing virtual hiring, tell them whether you're using Zoom or whatever you're doing, you know, how many people are going to be on the panel, how long it's for, that's useful for everybody. So I think it's not about going, these people need this, because then it feels burdensome. You can put that information on your internet and it's there for everybody coming. There's a pink building on the corner and you get the number 27 bus. That's useful for people starting in the job, right? Yeah. Do it once. You're doing it for everybody. You're then you're reducing the barriers to entry, you know, and you're less likely. And most most adjustments don't cost much. Yeah. They're about slowing down, checking for for you know for understanding, allowing somebody to have the questions before the interview. Why don't we do that as standard? Why do we think we have to? It has to be a surprise. We're checking whether you can remember. But the job. Who sits at a computer and has to remember everything? We have a computer. (laughs) We can look up things if we've forgotten them, you know? Yeah, it's like when you were at school and you used to be learning, you know, all this algebra and you were saying, well, you're never going to have a calculator on you at all times. And of course we do now in our phones. So, you know, there's always a way to overcome potentially barriers. Mm. I think perhaps a big problem, and, and I'm interested in your thoughts on this, is that people that are at the junior level might be more comfortable saying this is what I need because it might not seem as such a communications-based role, right? Once you start getting to that leadership level, you're not necessarily an individual contributor sitting at a desk. You are dealing with stakeholders. You're, you know, doing presentations. What advice can we give to women or, you know, men as well, anyone really, that's saying, I know that this isn't what I'm necessarily good at, but I know I can do it. How do you help them demonstrate those skills? So I think one of the things is as people move uh, along in their career, you are going to be presented with new sets of skills that you're going to learn. And it's recognizing perhaps that you're not so good at some of them. So I would say in an interview process, you know, is again, sell your strengths. And the interviewer needs to see this is not about testing what you can't do. It's finding out where there are skills gaps. 
So nobody comes with the full package to any job, right? You might blag that you have it, but most people don't have all the package, right? So I think the important thing then is to think about, um, I've got some training needs that I might may need and, and talk about it in that. To optimize my skills in this new role, I do see that there are some skills gaps in these areas that I might need some more help and support with. So it could be that I'm not so familiar doing um, presentations and some presentation skills training might be helpful for me to practice those skills to improve them. So I think it's being upfront as well as to assess your own needs. If you hate doing presentations and it makes you just, you know, grimace to think about probably it. Probably the wrong job. Probably the wrong job. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Now, representation is something that is pretty consistently brought up in Lift Up, having more women, more minorities, you know, if you can see someone in a job, you can be that person in a job. With neurodiversity, though, you can't see it. It's something that either someone will feel comfortable disclosing or won't. And is there something that we can do or is there any way that we can encourage more people that perhaps fall into these categories to promote it? Yes, I think so. So I think we, we've got um, Celebrating Neurodiversity Week in March. We, um, I'm chair of the ADHD Foundation. We have a big neurodiversity conference and an umbrella campaign in June. These are some very visual things which allow you to have opportunities to showcase what you're doing. If you're a confident senior leader and you want to stand up and share, that makes a huge difference because it says to other women, I can get there. Right. So I think that's really important. And I think it's something that I feel strongly about, which is we need to be seen. As you say, it's it, you're not you know, I'm not walking around uh, obviously neurodivergent. So you have to sort of tell people and people are starting to stand up and say, this is my story. This is what works. So telling your story and and in a safe way that feels safe and comfortable to you about your experiences. I don't think we have to reveal warts and all, you know, I, th I think that's important to protect who you are as well. But to say, this is what helped me, that's really useful to help other people. So I think we should as leaders to do that. Absolutely, I, I completely agree. I think it's very important. When you have women that are getting into leadership that are potentially feeling that they can't do it or they're struggling to hit the wall. And then they're also stuck with a barrier that is neurodiversity, which of course we know isn't a barrier, but it's all about having the conversation. That's what Lift Up is for. Mm -hmm. Do we think that there's more that we could be doing to encourage conversation? I think there is. I think one of the things I see about um, female neurodivergent leaders, right? So all three, aspects is that often um, the other bit we need to talk about a bit is that we say yes too often so we go enthusiastically in and say yes 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 and yes with balancing home and yes with balancing work and yes because I want to get to the top of my profession and what I also see is um, people getting burnt out and I think this is where having some mental health conversations is really important because Unless people start talking about that and what leads to it, it's very difficult for people to see because it's under the, you know, we're back to the sort of waggling under the water bit, which is if you don't talk about it, people think you are being supremely able to balance and juggle everything in your life. And then we all carry on 
waggling under the water but not talking about it. So I think that's really important that we think about leaders but also about mental health and well-being, what helps and that we need allies, you know, we need a support system, we need to ask for help, we need to learn to say no, as well as saying yes, and learn to say no confidently, because I think we say it badly with an apology still. I am definitely guilty of that, as I'm sure most, yeah, you as well, Amanda, I think a lot of women are, um, and you mentioned allies, which is essential I mention it all the time that you need support networks you need people in your circle you need encouragement uh, and to feel safe from the people that you live with that you're in your network but also from your employers and your colleagues Um, and I think sometimes opening up is having the hardest part is having the conversation but as soon as you do it's like that weight gets lifted off your shoulders and more often than not it's going to be received well Uh, And men play a really big part in that. You know, most men overall are very supportive of women in leadership and supportive of women reaching the top, regardless of differences. I think differences is important in the world. As we know, that's scientifically proven. Do you think that a female neurodivergent leader is as good or can lead as well as a male that doesn't? Oh, that's a big question. Yeah. And, and I would say, yes, why not, right? Why? Because I think also you're bringing different parts to, your, to the way you see the world, right? So I think the first thing is compassion and, and compassion with yourself and compassion to others. Um, we, we have a lens of experience that is going to be different. And just because leadership positions have been males in the past, it's because there were barriers to getting there because the structures and the, the way that we were getting there was much more male-centric. So if you think about why shouldn't females be leaders and why female neuro, neurodivergent people shouldn't be leaders, of course they should. Because what we want is more diverse leadership because we want different solutions. We don't want cookie cutter solutions. So we want people who are seeing the world differently, who are communicating differently and recognizing also that other people communicate with you differently. And I think that requires confidence um, and it requires that flattening the bell curve so the systems allow you to grow and we can grow more talent so we can get more leaders to show more examples of that and then that gets younger people coming through to see that is possible so we need more models to show that is possible but 100 percent, yes good i'm glad you said that it would be very awkward if you didn't um (laughs) but look i think that's a really nice way to move on to uh some quick fire questions um so i have been kind and given you questions you don't know which ones I'm going to pick though so I'm going to pick three questions and I want the first thing that pops into your head is that okay that's okay I'm taking a deep breath (laughs) all right wonderful uh what's the one thing that every man can do to support their female counterparts uh be open respectful and curious I agree absolutely what's the one piece of advice that has always stuck with you uh Never say yes to never say yes to something in the future if you wouldn't say yes to it tomorrow. Ah, oh, 
So I have a problem where I always say that's a future Sophie problem. <laughs> yeah, that's a future Sophie problem. That's not my problem right now. I'll deal with that later. And uh, never quite comes around. But I agree. So I have to keep repeating that one because I don't think I'm very good at it still. You know, so but it's a really good piece of advice. Really, I agree. And then the last one, I think, nice way to to round off is who has been your biggest role model? Uh, it's a professor um, and Bonnie Kaplan, who I met when I first when I was a young researcher starting off who was on the edge of the field, working in the field of neurodiversity, recognising co-occurrence, recognising that things were in silos. Um, she then started working around nutrition as well and think about nutrition and brain science. And she taught me that sometimes uh, you, you have to work at the edges and challenge what people understand. And I think it made me think, well, what I know today is probably different to what I knew yesterday and today is going to be different to tomorrow as well and challenge thinking and I think she was one of the people who influenced me early on in my career. I think we can apply the phrase challenge thinking to everything right Mm. now we can do things that perhaps typically weren't commonplace you know thinking differently being different Mm. is a good thing and it should be celebrated in leadership in you know, female leadership particularly. But um, I think that's a really lovely place for us to end, Amanda. And this has been really, really thank you because it's been a wonderful conversation. And I think that there is so much that individuals, companies, industries, you know, the life sciences space can do to be more inclusive, continue the conversation because ultimately the more we speak, the more we learn. Um, but As always, for anyone that has any questions on anything that Amanda has spoken about, please reach out to her at Do It, uh, but also please reach out to her in Lift Up. Until next time, I'm Sophie Packer. This is the Lift Up pod, and together, let's close the gap.